Chapter Nine of Nothing But the Truth by Frederick Isham. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Nine: Another Surprise. Three men were in his room, and Bob found himself sitting up in bed and blinking at them. The lights they had turned on seemed rather bright. Hello, said Bob. Hello yourself, said the Commodore in a low but nasty manner, and not so loud. Some sleeper you are spoke Dickie in a savage whisper. "'Believe he heard all right,' came Clarence's hushed, unamiable tones. Perverse beast, and pretended not to.' Bob hugged his knees with his arms. "'You've torn your pants,' he observed to the Commodore. "'Never you mind that,' as guardedly, though no more pleasantly than before. "'Oh, all right,' said Bob meekly. He didn't ask any questions, nor did he exhibit any curiosity. There couldn't anything happen now that would make matters much worse. But in that he was reckoning without his host. "'Got in the window, of course,' he observed in a low, unconcerned tone, as if their coming and being there after midnight was the most natural occurrence in the world. "'Not so hard to get in, with that balcony out there. All you had to do was to shin up, and then there's that trellis to help. Good strong trellis, too. Regular Jacob's ladder. Easiest thing for burglars.' thought you were burglars," he added contemplatively. "'You mean you saw us?' snapped the Commodore, almost forgetting his caution. His expression matched his tone. He was no longer the jovial sailor-man. He wore now a regular Dick Deadeye look. To Bob's comprehensive glance he appeared like a fragment in a revival of Pinafore. "'Oh, I didn't know it was you,' said Bob. "'Where were you?' "'Summer-house.' "'Think of that!' murmured the Commodore disgustedly. Bird at hand, and we didn't know it. Fool of a bird had to hop away and make us all this trouble. I told you I thought you were burglars, observed Bob patiently. He didn't care how they abused him or what names they called him. That disagreeable look on Dan's face was replaced by a startled one. Good gracious, man! Only that wasn't the expression he used. I hope you haven't told anyone you saw burglars prowling around. Nice for us if you did. As he spoke, he gazed anxiously toward the window, before which they had taken the precaution to draw a heavy drape after entering. No, I didn't tell a soul. But I don't understand why you didn't when you thought— I ought to have spoken, I suppose, said Bob with a melancholy smile. But it didn't seem very important, and I guess I forgot. These little jewel robberies are getting to be such commonplace occurrences. The Commodore stared at him. Then he touched his forehead. A lot of trouble you've made for us, he said, speaking in that low, tense voice, while Clarence and Dickie looked on in mad and reproachful fashion. Bribed a servant to tell you to slip out, told him to whisper that we were waiting in the garden, and simply had to see you at once. Didn't you hear him rap on your door? No, answered Bob sorrowfully. Heavens, man! Believe you'd sleep through an earthquake and cyclone combined. Servant came back and told us he'd tapped on your door as loudly as he dared was afraid he'd arouse the whole house if he knocked louder. When you leave a call at the hotels, how do they manage? Break down the door with an axe? Bob overlooked the sarcasm. The Commodore might have thumped him with an axe at the moment, and he wouldn't have protested very hard. He murmured a contrite apology. "'Get my telegram?' said the Commodore. "'Yes. What could you have been thinking about when you sent it? How could I leave when I had to stay?' thought you must have been sailing pretty close in the wind at the yacht club when you dashed it off. 
could just feel your mainsail fluttering. The Commodore swore softly but effectively. Clarence and Dickie murmured something, too. Bob hugged his knees closer. Being so unhappy himself, he couldn't but feel a dull sympathy when he saw anyone else put out. "'See here,' said the Commodore. "'What's the situation? We never dreamed, of course, that you would come here. Have you been talking with Mrs. Dan and Mrs. Clarence? Dickie's been conjuring up all kinds of awful things you might have told them, if they cornered you when you got that truth-telling stunt going. Dickie's got an imagination. Too confounded much imagination.' Here the Commodore wiped his brow. That was quite a bad tear in his pants, but he appeared oblivious to it. "'Maybe you would have thought it a capital way to turn the tables on us poor chaps,' he went on, stabbing Bob with a baleful look. "'Perhaps you came here on purpose?' "'No,' said Bob. "'I couldn't have done that, of course, owing to the conditions.' And he related what had happened to bring him there. Dan groaned. "'Why, it was we ourselves who steered him right up against her at the Waldorf. It was we who got him asked down here. I suppose you've been chuckling ever since you came?' turning on Bob with a correct imitation of Mr. Deadeye at his grouchiest moment. "'No,' said Bob, speaking to immeasurable distance. "'I haven't done any chuckling since I came here. Nary a chuckle.' "'Let's get down to brass tacks,' interrupted Dickie, "'and learn if our worst apprehensions are realized. "'There's a girl down here I think a lot of, "'and I'd like to know if, by any chance, "'any conversation you may have had with her turned on me. "'I allude to Miss Dolly—' "'Hold on,' said the Commodore. "'That's not very important. Suppose she should have found out a few things about you. You aren't married. It's different in the case of married men, like Clarence and me here. We'll dismiss Miss Dolly, if you please, for the present.' "'I really haven't said anything to Miss Dolly about you,' said Bob to Dickie. "'Your name hasn't been mentioned between us.' He was glad he could reassure one of them, at least. He wouldn't have had Dickie so sorrowful as himself for the world.' That young man looked immensely relieved. It may be he experienced new hope of leading the temperamental young thing to the altar, and incidentally consummating a consolidation of competing chimneys conveniently contiguous. "'Thanks, old chap,' he said, and shook Bob's hand heartily. "'But what about us?' whispered the Commodore sibilantly. "'Have you talked with Mrs. Clarence and Mrs. Dan to any great extent?' "'I haven't had hardly a word with Mrs. Clarence,' answered Bob whereupon Clarence began to throw out his chest, the way Dickie had done. The Commodore shifted uneasily, seeming to find difficulty in continuing the conversation. He moved back and forth once or twice, but realizing he was making a slight noise, stood still again, and looked down at Bob. "'Talk much with Mrs. Dan?' he at length asked nervously. "'I did have a little conversation with Mrs. Dan,' Bob was forced to reply or, I should say, to be strictly truthful, rather a long conversation. You see, I took her in to dinner. The Commodore showed signs of weakness. He seemed to have very indecisive legs all of a sudden. "'Talk about me?' he managed to ejaculate. "'Some. I'm not certain just how much. What, what was said?' "'I can't remember all. It's very confused. I've had a lot of conversations, you see, and most of them awfully unpleasant.' I remember, though, that Mrs. Dan impressed me as a very broad-minded lady. Said she had lived in Paris, and was not a bit jealous. What? Dan was breathing hard. Said she always wanted you to have the best kind of a time. Did she say that? asked the Commodore. And you believed it? Go on. 
in a choked voice, did you tell her about that cabaret evening? I believe it was mentioned, incidentally. Say I was there, put in Clarence quickly. He was losing that chestiness. I rather think I did. I— What is that? Bob looked toward the window. There was a sound below at the foot of the balcony. Someone turned out the light in the room, and Bob strode to the window and looked out. "'It's a dog,' he said. "'He's sniffing around at the foot.' "'He's doing more than sniffing,' observed the Commodore apprehensively, as at that moment a bark smote the air. They stood motionless and silent. The dog stopped barking, but went on sniffing. Maybe it would go away after a moment, and they waited. Dickie and the Commodore had thrashed out that question of dogs. With so many guests around, they had figured that, of course, they would be dog-safe. Didn't they look like guests? How could a dog tell the difference between them and a guest? It is true, they hadn't been expecting so much trouble as they had been put to, to find Bob. They had, in that little balcony, climbing feet, rather exceeded what they had expected to be called on to do. In their impatience they had acted somewhat impetuously, but it had looked just as easy, after the servant had pointed out the room and told them Bob was in, as certain sounds from his bed indubitably indicated. They couldn't very well enter the house as self-invited guests, though they of course would have been made welcome. They couldn't very well say they had all changed their minds about those original invitations which had naturally included husbands as well as wives. After all three had declined to come on account of business, it would certainly look like collusion if all three found they hadn't had urgent business at all in town. If anything untoward or disastrous had happened in the conversational line, with Bob as the demon god, Truth, their sudden entrance upon the stage of festivities, would seem to partake of inner perturbation. It might even appear to be a united and concentrated case of triple guilty conscience. This, obviously, must be avoided at any cost. How they had heard Bob was here at the Ralston house matters not. Naturally, they had kept tab on his movements, where he went and what he did being of some moment to them. The dog barked again. Thereupon a window opened, and they knew that someone had been aroused. "'He's looking out. It's the monocle chap,' whispered Bob. "'Who's he?' "'One of Mrs. Ralston's importations.' belonged to that Anglo-English colony when she did that little emigration act in dear old London. "'Hang it! We've got to get out!' whispered the Commodore nervously. No matter what had been said, no matter what the demon god of truth had done, it was incumbent on them not to remain longer, with that dog looking up toward Bob's window and making that spasmodic racket. Someone might get up and go out and see footprints or a disturbed trellis. The Commodore forgot a certain desperate business proposition, apropos of that confounded wager, he had come to put to Bob. That infernal dog got on his nerves and put that other matter, which would settle this truth-telling stunt at once, right out of his mind. It was all very well, however, to say they had to get out, but it was another matter to tell how they were going to do it. They couldn't descend the way they had come and meet Doggy. Bob arose to the occasion. I can let you into the hall and show you downstairs, to that side door on the other side of the house. You can take one of my golf-sticks, just as a safeguard, but I think you'll be able to circumvent the jolly little barker without being obliged to use it. "'What kind of a dog is it?' whispered the Commodore, who had a pronounced aversion to canines. "'Looked like a smallish dog. Might be a bull.' "'Better give us each a club,' suggested Clarence in a weak voice, which Bob did. 
The dog renewed the vocal performance, and— "'Hurry!' whispered the Commodore. "'Find means to communicate with you tomorrow, Mr. Bennett.' Bob didn't resent the formality of this designation, which implied to what depths he had fallen in good old Dan's estimation. "'Can we get downstairs without anyone hearing us?' Bob thought they could. Anyhow, they would have to try, so he opened the door softly and led the way. Fortunately, the house was solidly built and not creaky. They attained downstairs safely, and at last reached the side door without causing any disturbance. Bob unfastened the door. The key turned noiselessly, and they looked out. There was no sign of any living thing on lawn or garden on this side of the house. "'Out you go, quickly,' murmured Bob, glancing apprehensively over his shoulder. His position was not a particularly agreeable one. Suppose one of the servants, on an investigating tour as to the cause of Doggy's perturbation, should chance upon him, Bob, showing three men out of the house in that secret manner at this time of night? But before disappearing into the night, the Commodore took time to whisper, "'Was Gigi's name mentioned?' "'I fear so,' said Bob sadly. The Commodore wasted another second or two to tell Bob fiercely what he thought of him and how they would fix him on the morrow after which he sprang out and darted away like a rabbit. Bob wanted to call out that they were welcome to fix him, but he was afraid that others beside Dan might hear him, so he closed and locked the door carefully, and stood there alone in the great hall in his dressing-gown. Then he sat down in a dark corner and listened. Better wait until all was quiet, he told himself, before retracing his steps to his room. The dog seemed to have stopped barking altogether now, and soon any persons it might have awakened would be asleep again. His trio of visitors must be well on their way to the village by this time, he thought. He was sorry the Commodore seemed to feel so bad. And Clarence? Poor Clarence! That last look of his haunted Bob. Anyhow, he was pleased Dickie had, so far, escaped his, Bob's, devastating touch. How long he sat there he did not know probably only a few moments. A big clock ticked nearby, which was the only sound now to be heard. Suddenly it occurred to him that he had better return to his room, and wearily he arose. Upstairs it seemed darker than it had been when he had left his room. He had the dim lights in the great hall below to guide him then. Now it was a little more difficult. However, after traversing without mishap a few gloomy corridors, he realized what a big house it really was, he reached at last his room near the end of one of the upper halls, and entered. He had a vague idea he had left his door partly ajar, but he wasn't sure. Probably he hadn't, for it was now closed. Or maybe a draught of air had closed it. Groping his way in the dark for his bed, he ran against a chair. This ruffled his temper somewhat as the sharp edge had come in contact with that sensitive part of the anatomy known as the shin-bone. He felt for his bed, but it wasn't there where it ought to be. He must have got turned around coming in. His fingers ran over a dresser. Some of the articles on it seemed strange to him. He thought he heard a rustle and stood still, with senses alert, experiencing a regular burglar feeling at the moment. He hadn't become so ossified to emotion as he had supposed. But everything was now as silent as the grave. Again his hand swept out to learn where he was, and again his fingers swept over the dresser. What were all those confounded things? He didn't know he had left so much loose junk lying around. And where was that confounded switch-button? At that moment someone else found it, for the room became suddenly flooded with light. 
Bob started back, and as he did so, something fell from the dresser to the floor. He stared toward the bed in amazement and horror. Someone, with the clothes drawn up about her, was sitting up. Bob wasn't the only one who had a surprise that night. The temperamental little dark thing was treated to one, too. Above the white counterpane she stared at Bob. End of chapter 9